welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, elegant kumquat. I'm Mariah Rose. <laughs> oh, wow. Doesn't that start with a C? Nope. Okay. I just checked. What? Okay. Kumquat with a K. Guess we'll have to leave it in then. <laughs> your choice, not mine. It's what your mom named you. How you doing? I'm great. I mean, I'm married to somebody named Elegant Kumquat, but other than that, all is well. How are you? Uh, well, it'd be better if that wasn't my name. Sorry to out you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to talk about today's episode. Mm-hmm. We'll get into it, but if you are just joining us, you picked a good episode to come in on. Heck yeah. Because <laughs> it's going to be a party. Yeah. If you're returning... You picked like a really good episode to return. Yeah. Yeah. You're here and it is clear that you've made the correct choice. <laughs> yeah. Moral of the story. You like you probably picked a pretty good episode today. Yeah. If you exist, then you will thrive with this episode. Yep. And you'll go out and you'll transfer this energy into the world and transform it. I'm feeling like we might be overselling this. <laughs> Well, I'm to be a determined. Minor panic attack. <laughs> That'll be our wrap up in the end. <laughs> Did we deliver the holy grail? Yeah. Speaking of, thank you to everybody who rates, reviews, and subscribes to us. That means a lot. Uh, we've got some nice reviews on our what is it? Apple, iTunes. So I found I was listening to an episode the other day on another podcast, and somebody mm-hmm. said. It's like really like an old person thing to still say iTunes. It's called Apple something. We're old. Who cares? Apple Music or well, something like that? you're old. I'm just along for the ride. Okay. I still thought it was called iTunes. I'm younger than you. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that's true. You're much younger. You're Gen X? Yep. I am Gen I- X. I am millennial. Yeah, yeah, you're the one wearing flannel right now. <laughs> it's back in style. Well, ripping Shut off up. my generation. Our child borrowed my shirt. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I'm a millennial. Okay, well, millennial. Yeah, you <laughs> act like a millennial, that's for sure. Okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this week we are going back into the world of one of my all-time favorite directors, Mr. John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And we are diving into a heavy hitter, one of my all-time favorite movies ever. Whoa. Big Trouble in Little China. This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack? They told him to go to hell. He made one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. 
okay, up until this point, I've been like trying to play it super cool, totes profesh, but I'm like Soups. internally freaking out. <laughs> I love Big Trouble in Little China so much. I uh, do. When was the first time you ever saw this movie? Oh, I don't know if I've ever made this admission to you. <gasps> do not say like two nights ago. Oh, how could that be? We've watched it together for 20 years. Yeah, but you fall asleep every movie. So it could have been like we've tried to watch it 12 times and this was the first time you stayed awake. I hadn't seen it until I was a teenager and you showed it to me. Oh, okay. Well, that's not too big of a deal. Yeah, but it was like eight years late. Yeah. Well, that's, no, I, I was afraid you were going to say like, you know, what? two years ago. You have known me since I was 16. We have definitely watched this together like more than a dozen times. What I have very short term memory. <laughs> you lunatic. <laughs> What movie are we even talking about today? I'm sorry, Boomer. Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Big Trouble in Little China. Let me Big tell trouble. you a little bit about my history with this. Please, Eric, tell us all about it. I've been watching it since 1947. <laughs> I really <laughs> love this movie a lot. This was one of the ones that I had in my house. Funny story, though, my... Two of my favorite, favorite movies ever that would be on my, easily my top 10, if not my top five list. Okay. Would be Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. I watched them all the time. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I realized it was the same director, John Carpenter. Aww, cute. I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. So I, maybe that's why I have a special place uh, is just because two of my favorite films were done by the same person. And pretty close together, a few years apart. Have we covered Escape? No, we have not. Uh-oh. A little too precious. Too precious? Yeah, it's kind of like how of the years and years and years I've been in bands, I refuse to cover a Cure song because I feel like some things you just shouldn't do. Oh. A little, little like, I feel like Escape from New York's off, off the oh, table. Oh, weird. It's yeah. kind of creepy. Okay. I don't know if I would describe that as creepy. You're creepy. Whatever. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> that was a poor choice of words. Whatever, elegant. Let's go. Okay. Well, needless to say, growing up with this film, I really love it. I think it ages well. I think we'll address some issues about it, but they don't really... There's not a lot of issues about it. Overall, it's a really fun film that had a... Like all of John Carpenter's films, pretty much a bumpy ride, but has found itself... Uh, in the passenger seat to the Colt Express. So yeah. it's yeah, it's it's gone over well in the long term, but like almost every one of his films, it wasn't an immediate success. And no. we'll talk about that too. No, no, no. Talking about Big Trouble in Little China, this is a film that John Carpenter did not write, which, you know, he's written several of his films, not all of them, but this is an as is one that he didn't write the script for himself this was written by two people gary goldman and david z weinstein they came up with the original idea but it was way different i know you probably know this story too but it was supposed to be a traditional like a western Mm -hmm. a mystic western in the 1880s this makes total sense to me for john carpenter coming on board because if anybody knows his films the one reoccurring theme in almost all of his films are they really are all pretty much westerns. <laughs> like, apart from a couple, 
uh, most of them are just westerns at the core like reimagined westerns yeah like modern interpretations so I, this made perfect sense i actually read a quote and he called the first draft of the script outrageously unreadable john carpenter did? yes Oh, interesting. Yes, he said, outrageously unreadable, though it had many interesting elements. So they worked. Wow. Okay, well, because the a film company bought it, and they said, okay, we'll take the script. And then they realized, like, we don't want to deal with this whole 1880s San Francisco or whatever this is going to be. We need to update it. Let's make it modern. So instead of bringing the writers back and letting them rework it, which they really tried to do, they brought on a guy who was way more established and reworking scripts. This guy was W.D. Richard, and he had already done a couple things. He also had pretty negative things to say. He looked at it and he said it was it was clearly a mess, and mm. there was a reason why they weren't going to bring these guys back on to rewrite it. And he, this is this was a surprise too. He basically threw out everything. Like I think the only thing he kept was Lopan, like that story. Oh. Everything else he rewrote. And this caused a ton of tension because he basically wrote Big Trouble in Little China, but didn't get the writer credit for it. Oh. And the original writers were like, you're giving us the writer credit for it. And the studio tried to cut them out entirely <gasps> and leave them off the credits. Rude. But they won out. So they actually get the writing credit. And then he gets the kind of like adapted from or something and this made john carpenter a little upset because he was like um he's the one that wrote the story that we're actually doing okay so whatever point he said i don't know if it was the rewritten script or the first but i'm assuming it's the first now that i know this that outrageously unreadable yeah no okay that sounds they all got that first script and they were first time script writers anyway so it was like clear that it was young script writers trying to do something and it needed a lot of work but it just took a lot of work to get it to this modernized version of what we know as big trouble in little china so it's kind of a complicated story and i think the only reason why i'm focusing on it is because it's important by the end of this episode to understand that Nothing really came easy with this film. It was kind of complication after complication that would just kind of pile on and lead to an ultimate decision by Carpenter at the end of this film for the rest of his career. You know, I will say, though, as a person who has written many a script, uh, (laughs) first scripts never go well. My first script that I ever wrote uh, was about how our neighbor boy, Chad Krause, fell in love with me. He refused to act in this film. So I rewrote it, uh, and we were vampires, and he fell in love with me, and he acted in it then. <gasps> Did he sparkle? No. Uh, oh. I was so far behind the curve. Oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> really missed opportunity there. Speaking of early scripts. Oh, yes. This is completely off subject, but oh. to those of you out there who write film scripts, mm-hmm. don't sit on them too long, because somebody else will eventually write that story, because the story is in the air, and you have to act on it. We were just browsing, what was it, Netflix or something one day. Oh, no. Yep. We're going to talk about it. Okay. And we come across a British comedy, horror comedy, called Zomboat. Mm-hmm. And I lost my beans because you years ago, I wrote a film script called Zomboat. Definitely not the same story. I'll tell you that right now. But the same title. Same title. And, and it I involved a like boat. It did involve, well, and zombies. a cruise ship. But 
I just was so bummed out because I never did anything with it. And now that title is forever taken. I know. Yeah. I know. How did we get to that point in this story right now? Well, I was talking about Chad Krause falling in love with me in third grade. Oh, right. Yep. Okay, cool. So anyway, WD wrote this new script that they decided to go forward with. There wasn't a huge budget. It was like 15 to 20 million. They had to build a ton of sets. We watched the Blu-ray recently. Oh, the commentary. And it's got the commentary from a DVD version from back in the 90s or something like that. Yeah, it was, I think, like, whenever Sex in the City was out. Well, maybe it was like 2001, somewhere. I, oh, it was. Yeah, it was early 2000s. So it was funny because it's got this really dated commentary on oh, a very modern Blu-ray. Yes, because they specifically talk about Sex in the City. That's how we dated it. Yeah, that's right. And it was really fun to learn about all these inside stories of what was built on set, what was on location, Mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. But it was a pretty big undertaking for a pretty small budget overall, which meant you had to cut some corners. Um, That's part of the reason why John Carpenter was brought in is because they knew he was a director that could work really quickly and efficiently. So they thought, well, if we get a guy in who can just do the job in a short time, we can save some money there on production time. So... I think originally they had about 10 weeks to do pre-production, kind of get everything in order, which is really insane when you think about all the choreography and everything. Because there's a lot of fight scenes. There is a lot of fight scenes. This is really a studio film. Keep that in mind. This isn't like an independent film. Also on that subject of the script, uh, Goldman, one of the writers of the original script, when he found out it was being reworked, contacted Richter and said, like, don't do it. Don't change this up. And I read a a little thing with Richter and he said, look, you need to let it go because you're not going to get hired back on to rework this script. If I don't do it, they're just going to hire somebody else, but it's not going to be you. And basically had to just set him straight with welcome to Hollywood. Here's the industry. Here's the industry. And that's really another one of these things about big budget films or even just studio films, I should Mm -hmm. say, not even big budget That causes a lot of tension between people who just don't understand how this world works. John Carpenter being one of them. You know, he's tried up till this point, you know, a couple times to dip his toe into a legit studio film to get real funding. And this was this was it right now. The big guns. Yeah, this is the big shot. And. One of the things was that this was going to be a really fresh film. You know, it was this kind of. Asian mysticism mixed with a Western ideal, you know, mm-hmm. originally, you know, it was supposed to be a cowboy, but obviously they updated it. And this was something that had not been done before. We'll find out that the timing is really bizarre uh, yes. as far as where Hollywood was going to quickly, quickly turn to embrace this kind of story. Mm-hmm. But up until this point, hadn't really quite Cutting taken edge. off yet. Yeah. Speaking of how things were about to change, while John Carpenter was signed on to do Big Trouble in Little China, he got a phone call to direct another film. That other film, any guesses? No. The Golden Child. What? Yeah, that's how the story goes. A film that we discussed not too long ago on an episode, Mm -hmm. another one of my favorite films. I'm all in with both these, by the way. I feel like people are supposed to choose. No way. I will take them both any day of the week. He was offered to do The Golden Child. And when he found out, he was like, you've got to be kidding me. I read a quote with John Carpenter who said, like, tell me in the last 20 years, 
a film that ever has combined these two elements and how is it that in the exact same year two are now being offered what's the coincidence here so i i don't know if this was a case of like somebody leaked the script or something but what he realized is eddie murphy was signed on to do the golden child and they were going to get steamrolled hard which meant they had to change everything so john carpenter realized that they had to speed up production Mm. And they tried to get it out by the summer in July, mm-hmm. way ahead, five months ahead of the Golden Child in December. Because if they didn't get it out first, there was no way they would stand a chance. I feel like I need to go back and listen to our Golden Child episode because I feel like the Golden Child was up against something like, was it Indiana Jones? I'm sure. This whole something. year is bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, 86 in general is like a massive colossal year. Mm. We'll talk about the end that even though they avoided like bumping up against Golden Child, they still got completely swallowed up in another like mega hit. Mm. So it was just lose-lose in 86 for pretty much everybody except for a few films. really, really wish he had said yes to both and had directed both both films that would have been really fascinating i I mean i don't know what it would have done to his career if he would have been like the strange eastern mysticism guy but yeah (laughs) that would have been hilarious he just like was like i don't know i'm gonna put my eggs in both baskets yeah and it's interesting that you talk about that too you know i talked about the script being developed john carpenter does have a little bit of a hand in the writing of the script because when it was being reworked he noticed some elements that were maybe could be offensive to Chinese culture and were being brought up to him. So he brought it to the scriptwriter and said, I think we need to make some changes. And then he talked about this in the commentary that he even got a little paranoid because he had never encountered anything like this before. With... He got, it sounded like a significant pushback from the community. Yeah. And so he went to a lot of his actors who were of Chinese descent and said, what am I do? Like, you need to tell me what's not working. Most of them were like, no, this is pretty good. He made a few changes, but that was why he's got a little bit of a credit as a writer is because he went through and and updated some of the stuff that could have been perceived as offensive or exploitive. I mean, it could, by 21st century standards, there's still a lot. But by 1980 standards, okay. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is another thing that's when we reflect on this is now... We have a better understanding of, you know, old fashioned like Kung Fu movies and stuff. But up until this point, yes, hadn't really been introduced in a major way like this. So he grew up on these films and Mm -hmm. he really wanted to tell this story. And he was very much passionate and a fan of these kinds of films as we learned through the commentary like he knows his stuff. Sure. And, And nowadays we would say it's not your story to tell. But back in the 1980s, I think a lot of people, at least the actors who spoke out about it, were saying, you know, we're just so happy that somebody's giving us a voice. So I don't know that that's entirely true, but that was some of the commentary that I read. Uh, so times have definitely changed. I think now we would say if you're going to make a move in, movie about China in any way or Chinese lore, mysticism, anything like that, you would need a director that is Chinese. Yeah, I would also say that there was a little bit of a miscommunication with John Carpenter. And mm-hmm. we turn turns out um, our lead man, too, where they got this bright idea to kind of invert the leads to make mm-hmm. the... The leading man is the sidekick, and the sidekick is the leading man. Yeah, and that is something that 
uh, confused John Carpenter because he was like, how could this be offensive when the actual hero of the film is Chinese? And I don't think anybody realized it. Even as they were watching it, they didn't quite catch it. Yeah. But when you go back with that in mind and you watch <laughs> Big Trouble in Little yeah. China, it is very clear uh, who is the lead, like hero of the who film and who is sm- not. Smart yeah. and talented. And who's just kind of bumping around and getting through the story. Yeah, so. but we watch him as the lead yeah so john carpenter did talk about how that was a shortcoming where they thought they were being really funny and clever yeah and uh, it just didn't it fell completely flat Mm -hmm. on everybody around them at Mm -hmm. the time all right so as we already discussed he knew he was in competition with eddie murphy as the star of the golden child and he wanted to get a leading man who was sort of the same caliber that Eddie because Eddie Murphy was incredibly popular at that time and would you like to know who they initially considered I would Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood really oh that's interesting Mm because I know that they originally considered Charles Bronson for Escape from New York oh and they were like that's not (laughs) the guy that we need yeah (laughs) no thanks so either it says that they were both busy with other projects, but I think that's what actors say when they're not interested. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I'm working on something else. So the studio put in a recommendation for Kurt Russell, and he was actually interested in the role. He was into the idea that the lead character wasn't the hero or the main character. And this is uh, something he actually talks about in the commentary that we watched. He described his character as someone who thinks of themselves as Indiana Jones, but is uh, basically, the situation is like way outside of his scope. Yeah. Like he's always in over his head. Yes, that's what I think comes across really well in Big Trouble in Little China. That if you're aware of it, it makes it even funnier. Is that every situation he just screws up because he's just yeah. clearly not capable of handling anything around him, but everybody around him helps him handle it. Classic American. And somehow he comes out as being like the hero that accomplishes nothing. Yes. So Dennis Dunn actually is yeah. the one who plays the real hero of this movie. He plays Wang Chi. He was spotted by Carpenter in the film The Year of the Dragon and met with him and cast him actually just a few days before they started shooting their like, I don't know, the photography stuff. I think this was a very smart decision because he is excellent in this role. He's great. He actually has some martial arts training, I guess from childhood. And he worked in the Chinese opera as an adult, so... Okay, well, there you go. And somebody else was actually considered for this role, too. Who? Jackie Chan. Really? Yes. He had been considered for the role, but he didn't think it was worth it, because he had seen a few other films of a similar nature. Uh, Not the same, like, subject matter, but, like, Chinese films in America crossover things fail. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to continue in hong kong and he stayed there yeah that was probably a really good choice (laughs) it was i mean long term maybe not so much but initially no i mean jackie Jackie chan's Chan's doing just fine yeah yeah and (laughs) and i really i like dennis dunn in this he's so cute i do too i think he's fantastic he's He's, got this like charm and he's like 
I don't know. He's great. I also think that their dynamic between the two of them, Kurt Russell and him, are really great. Like, he plays very a, believable. A great straight too. He's yeah. very serious. He knows the goal and he's going to get it, and he knows how to get it. But he has to deal with Jack. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and then our other—I'm not going to go through the whole cast, but our our final one is Kim Cattrall. She plays Gracie Law, and uh, Carpenter actually had to push for her in this role because the studio wanted to cast like a musician, like a rock star. Oh, really? Yeah. Like who? Like De- I don't, Debbie Harry or I something? I don't know. Like they that? didn't, I didn't find anything, but they wanted to play somebody like mu- musical. I think they just wanted a big name. Oh, okay. And Kim Cattrall had done like. Porky's Police Academy. Yeah. And so she was kind of like an actress known for being like vulgar, rude films. And (laughs) Carpenter pushed for her. She actually liked the role because she wasn't just a dumb blonde in despair. Like, of course, she needed rescuing in this. It's the 80s. But she was smart and like able to figure things out, not just an idiot running and being a pawn. So she, she liked that. Yeah, we'll talk about the relationship between her and Jack's, you know, character, or I guess Kurt Russell's character as Jack, because that's also super non-traditional. Yeah. Which, again, it goes back to Carpenter and Kurt Russell thinking they were being really clever with, you know, changing some things up, and Mm -hmm. it was also lost on everybody. So, I don't know. Yeah. You know, they're trying out things. It just was not meant to be. No, it wasn't. And actually, speaking of Kurt Russell, I have this week's Fun fact. Ooh, coming in early. Actually, I don't have one fun fact for you. I have ten. Okay. Like, I need to play the theme ten times in a row? No, 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 no. Should I do a remix fun fact? Yes, go! Okay, here we go. Wow, I gave myself way too much work for that, but it was worth it. (laughs) So, uh, as we were watching this, I was like, Kurt Russell's kind of a babe, first of all. that's not like a a revelation. It was for me. I watched it this time and I was like, whoa. His hair didn't get you alone? (laughs) Dude, this is like peak. It was. Peak hair, Kurt Russell. And this is shirt and his dimples. I was like, okay, I like Kurt. And so we looked up some fun facts. Turns out, maybe there's some mismatches. You'll find out. But let's go through our 10 fun facts. Oh, you're doing 10 Kurt Russell fun facts? Yes. Number 10. He's a licensed pilot. Okay. Number nine. His middle name is Vogel. Vogel? Yeah, Vogel. It's not a name. I looked it up. It means like happy song or bird. Hippie parents. Keep going. Number eight, he's a boomer. He was born in 1951. Number seven, he was playing professional football. Ah, yeah. And he had a shoulder injury, and it crushed his dreams, and he had to settle for being a super famous actor. Yeah, with great hair. But the doctor... problems, am I right? (laughs) The doctor that broke him to him, like, said, you know how you do part-time acting? And Kurt was like, "Uh uh-huh. And he said, well... Now it's full time. <laughs> rude. That is rude. Okay, number six. 
Russell was considered for both Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. What? Yes. And he had another like project waiting in the wings. And so he went to George Lucas and was like, which one are you thinking? And Lucas was like, ah, I'm kind of back and forth, back and forth. I don't know. And he was dragging his feet. And so Russell was like, you know what? Uh, I got this other project and it's here and it's now. I'm going to go do it. And he went and did the bomb movie called Quest. Okay. I have no idea what it is. So that's what he did instead of either of those. Good job. So so he just totally like voluntarily ruined his career. Well, I mean, you got to go when you got to go. Oh, this one is interesting. What number are we on? We're on number five. Okay. So, um... He was rated as having zero unlikability in some random questionnaire that a studio did. They were trying to figure out who their most likable actors were. And he was the only actor who rated zero on unlikability. Yeah, I believe that. You know Still what? holds true today. It's proving my dimple theory. Yeah. He's got big, beautiful dimples. It's true. 100% likable. It's true. He, well, he's got beautiful hair, too. I'm. He has a full mullet in this. I'm not quite sure where you're going. It's but beautiful mullet, Mariah. We're <laughs> okay. inclusive on this podcast. Um. So he is. We're at number four. The same height as me. Okay. Uh, yeah. Five eleven. Five ten three quarters. Okay. It actually says on IMDb five ten and three quarters. Okay. Wow. But he's 70 now or 70 something. Mm-hmm. So I'm Silver Fox. Pretty sure I'm taller than him. He's got to have some of that, you know, osteo situation happening. <laughs> okay, well, don't don't get too proud of yourself. Okay. Your time's coming, honey. <laughs> he officially officially reported having seen a UFO. Ooh, I like him even more now. So he was flying and he saw his son pointed it out to him, his son Wyatt. And was like, what are those lights? And they saw six lights, couldn't identify him, called it in. And it's it was the Phoenix light. So many other people spotted it. And mm-hmm. he, like, kept it under wraps until 2018. Okay, what number are we on? Uh, number two. Okay. He was the best man in Ted Nugent's wedding. Ooh, I sorry, know. Kurt. You finally had a dent. I know. A I was in the like, armor. maybe 98%. You could have just also left that out. But we're <laughs> to number one. Drum roll. Okay. When asked if he would have a cameo in a remake of Escape from New York, he said, F that, I am Snake Plissken. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And we get Escape from L.A. That bombed. And I'll add to that that there was a part three supposed to be Escape from Mars, but ended up becoming Ghost of Mars. I fall asleep every time we watch that. You know what? Baloney. That film is awesome. And it, it I know when it first came out, everybody was like, this sucks. And it's like totally new metal. But it's actually a really fun film. It's fun like halfway and then it gets, you're just like, okay, I see where this is going. And then you fall asleep. Ugh, you're such a millennial. 
Oh, boomer. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for all of those fun facts. I've, man, that's the first time we've done that before. That was rapid fire. Yeah. But now you know all about Mr. Dimples. Yep. Machine gun fun facts right there. You're welcome. Yeah, you got it. Okay. So that is our cast. Mm-hmm. Our cast does a great job. You're forgetting Victor Wong. Oh, uh, yes. I absolutely love him. I did leave him out because we covered him when we did... Um, the Golden Child. Yeah, you're breaking my heart, asswipe. Yes. So go back there, learn all about Victor Wong. Yeah, he's great. The cast overall is fantastic. The sets are amazing. There is zero need for us to go through the entire like scene by scene because everybody's seen it, but we definitely need to talk about this bonkers plot. <laughs> like what this film is even about. Yeah, let's do like a quick refresher if it's been a while since you've seen it we cannot walk you through it because it's so much so let's just kind of dive in let's get our bearings and then we'll continue on we have a trucker jack burton Mm -hmm. he's got a friend wang chi they're headed to the airport i'm skipping way ahead here because (laughs) we set the scene uh they're headed to the airport to pick up wang's fiance miao yin Mm-hmm. Is it meow or Mao? Meow. <laughs> I'm going to go with meow. It's M-I-A-O. Meow. I think that's her name, meow. meow. In a crazy turn of events, a street gang who are attempting to abduct another Chinese girl who is arriving to meet her buddy, Gracie Law, played by Kim Cattrall. Uh, so... It's like this whole chaotic scene at the airport. This is obviously pre-9-11 because everybody's rushing the gate. Yeah, that street gang's awesome looking, too. Yeah, it's a cool cool gang. They're called the Lords of Death. Whoa, wait, what? Yeah, I, I found... I knew that. It doesn't say it anywhere, but in the descriptor of it, it says they're the Lords of Death. Damn, that's a gang name. That's a band name, dude. Is it taken? Of course it's taken. Of course it is. It's been taken 400 times at this point. Dagnabbit. Don't even get me started on band names. You keep a list. <laughs> yeah, I do. I've got okay. some pretty cool ones, actually. Yeah, you steal them all from me. Yeah. Okay. Jack, he tries to interrupt this abduction because, remember, he basically fancies himself as an Indiana Jones character. But basically, the gang just is like, oh, okay, we won't take Gracie's friend. We'll take Meow, Lynn. (laughs) And so they take her. So now Jack and Wang go to Chinatown. They're going to track down the gang, get back their fiance. And the Lords of Death, they're Mm going to just hunt it down solve this problem move on with their day but they interrupt a funeral this is quite quite the scene to interrupt there's oh like my gosh. multiple gangs coming from all angles and this isn't like an alley in chinatown that i guess was used in many music videos but most notably a janet jackson one? yeah yeah well because it was such a cool set that after it was built everybody mm-hmm. was like and it is when you actually know it's a set and you're looking at it like really well done but yes there is an epic battle scene here that happens yeah and they they don't start the battle they just interrupt a battle between two like warring groups yeah until things get a little crazy yes the three storms arrive the three storms being thunder rain and lightning those are people so cool they are like deities kind of yeah for sure okay so they arrive guess what their powers are related to Mm -hmm. thunder rain and lightning 
And they look awesome. They do. One (laughs) of them is a model. Yeah, lightning. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I mean, really, they're all a model, but... Yeah. (laughs) Jack tries to drive through all of this chaos, because he's in a semi-truck, and they're just trying to get Meow. And get Meow out. (laughs) Meow. Meow. (laughs) Jack tries to drive through, and he runs over this old man, Lopan. Lopan's in charge of three storms, but Jack gets out, and he's like, whoa, 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 I ran over some dude. And Lopan is unhurt and is, in fact, glowing with power and maybe rage. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. To be determined. Jack and Wang are like, yeah, goodbye. And they escape all of this chaos. They go to Wang's restaurant where they meet up with a group of their friends. Basically, to sum it up, there's some Chinese mystical stuff happening. (laughs) Lots of it. (laughs) And I say stuff because it's not clearly based on anything historical no but it's super awesome anyway they all decide that meow yun is probably in a brothel uh-huh. uh, i don't know really how they reached this conclusion i guess they just sort of knew it already it's owned by lopan and they decide jack should go in and in disguise as like a uh i think he's a phone repairman or something does he totally come across as Chris Farley's uh, big guy in a little <gasps> yes! jacket. Yes, he doesn't yeah. have a little jacket, but yes. Doesn't he look like him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he also looks like his used cars character. That's probably more what it is. But it always makes me think after I saw that. Yeah. I'm like, oh man, it totally. looks like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China. It's like the same clothes for sure. Yeah. But um, also in the commentary, they said that uh, Kurt Russell had like a massive fever and he's like sweating. And if you look, you can see in his eyes that he's sick. And I did and I could. Oh, really? I'm sure. I looked right into Kurt Russell's eyes and then I looked down into his dimple. I don't know. I just can't compete anymore. I do have luscious hair. You do. And at this point... Probably have nicer hair than Kurt Russell. Just gonna you're, say it. You're more handsome than 9,000 Kurt Russells put but together. I don't have a dimple. That'll forever be my shortcoming. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's because you can't be perfect. That wouldn't be fair to anybody else. I don't have a dimple either. That's true. I just have, like, they're, they want to be dimples, but they're more just like face creases. What? What are you even talking about right now? Oh, you're smiling at me. It's creepy. <laughs> Okay, so their plan fails. Wang and Jack are captured and brought to Lopan. But now Lopan is not just, like, old. He's super duper old. And and Wang's like, Lopan needs to marry a green-eyed woman to break a curse. Sure. Let's just leave it at that and not go into the curse. Miao Yin happens to have green eyes for sure the idea is that lopan needs to marry green-eyed gal and then sacrifice her to release him from this ancient curse and he'll be released from his old man body tale as old as time i mean we've all been there isn't that the truth yeah meanwhile 
The group tries and fails to rescue Jack and Wang, but then they all escape together, except Gracie, who also happens to be a green-eyed gal. She's abducted by some sort of primate that's never explained. Oh, yeah, the beast. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty funny. It's like a character out of He-Man. I don't even know what's happening, but Lopan, realizing now that he has two green-eyed ladies, he's like, which one's more attractive to me and which one can die? So he decides he's going to marry both but kill Gracie and stay married to Miao Wen. Sure. Miao Yen. Yeah, good choice. Okay. The escaped group, meanwhile, rally rallies. They take a power potion that Egg Shen yeah, has prepared. So great. And then they go to battle. They kick some butt. Jack finds his semi and they escape back to the restaurant. Everyone's jazzed yeah. to be alive. Miao Yen and Wang plan to marry. Gracie offers to go with Jack, but he's like, nah. Yeah, he's got to go cruise in the Porkchop Express. Yes, but the weird primate has escaped and continues on the end. It's just such classic 80s. It is. It's interesting, too. There's some decisions being made here that we need to discuss. One was the reversal of the lead Mm -hmm. versus the sidekick and who the actual hero is. So we talked about that. You know, Dunn being the actual hero. He knows where to go, what to do, how to... Fight. He has all of the information and the skill. Jack just fumbles around the whole time. And only survives because of others. Yes. And it's great. It's really funny. Mm-hmm. Also, this reversal of him not needing to hook up with the chick or her not needing the man at the end. Mm-mm. She is kind of like, I, are we not going to like hang out at least? And he's like, see ya. <laughs> that's funny. I, I do like that. I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. I think that that was funny. It was. That did not go over well with the studio. Really? Yeah, nobody was happy about that. They were like, why would he not just like make a happy ending? And, uh, you know, of course, John Carpenter thought that was hilarious. Yeah, it is. So the other thing that we need to discuss that's very non-traditional in a movie like this is the soundtrack. So John Carpenter was thinking about films like this that had been done in the past and how they all had a very kind of cliche Chinese-esque you know, film mm-hmm. score. And he didn't want that. He wanted to go the opposite direction. He was like, let's just make like a rock and roll and synth score. So he dipped into his band at the time, <laughs> which was the Coupe de Villes. And the Coupe de Villes are an interesting group. They're made up of John Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, who is actually the director of Halloween Part 3, Season of the Witch. Oh. A bunch of stuff. I think he did Fright Night 2 and stuff like that, too. Okay. And Nick Castle, who is the original shape, Michael uh-huh. Myers, <laughs> in the first film. What a weird group. Very. Well, but they were all friends. You know, Nick Castle co-wrote Escape from New York and it stuff makes like sense. that. So. When we were listening to the commentary, they were friends. Kurt Russell was like talking they were like having a conversation about going to a hockey tournament i see that he makes these lasting friendships oh for sure that's why he always works with the same people but it was the three of them had a band a rock band and that's who performed most of the soundtrack alan howarth which has been carpenter's longtime collaborator up until this point if you want to know more about him this is a deep dive but in our Patreon episodes, when I was doing Chill Factor, I mm-hmm. did one on John Carpenter, and I go over their relationship extensively mm-hmm. on how they work together. That's something that a lot of people don't understand. They just think that John Carpenter 
scored everything, but that is not the case at all. Alan is really the brains behind it, getting everything ready. So there was a lot of synth done by him, but the band itself had a couple tracks on there, really fun ones, you know, the title track. My favorite, though, has to be the Porktrop Express. Mm-hmm. And let's just listen to a little piece of it right now. So you have to imagine, too, a score on top of this type of film. It just it made it really stand out and be a little unique. And I think it was risky, and I don't think it really was rewarded until way, way after the fact. But what's interesting is all the things that they chose to make different or non-traditional are what people love about it now. Yeah. It's what makes it stand out as a, as a cult film. So the score was done. It's a great soundtrack. I've got it on vinyl. And the film overall is just super solid. It was released... Okay, remember we found out that The Golden Child was going to be released too? Mm-hmm. And it comes out in, I think, June is when it came out. So they beat The Golden Child by several months, only to find out that two weeks later, guess what's going to be coming out? Something that everybody has been anticipating all year. What? <laughs> uh, James Cameron's Aliens, oh. which just dominates so yeah. they didn't stand a chance no. so they were screwed from any direction they were trying yeah. in addition we found out through the commentary that the studio just completely dropped the ball with advertising what did they say like three million not even that and then nobody knew about it like kurt russell was saying yeah i'm in a new film and everybody's like what film what are you <laughs> nobody's ever heard of that film so they just it was just kind of like a, an absolute flop overall mm-hmm the film did really bad. It opened on 1,053 theaters on July 2nd, 1986. It only pulled in 11 million. Didn't even make its own budget pack. Oh. Okay, so just for comparison, when The Golden Child came out, same exact budget, 15 to 20 million, it made 150 million in the oh. box office. So. That's the story of this one. Well, in the commentary again, Kurt Russell was saying that his career was made on video. Which I agree. You know, and we get this time and time again with, especially the films we cover with Laser Graves, that a lot of them didn't do mm-hmm. well in the theater, but they found an audience in, you know, in home video yep. later. And, you know, I'm definitely one of those kids who had it on VHS. It's sitting right behind me right now. And it's... One of those things that I discovered after the fact. I didn't see it in the theater. It did go on, though, to become extremely influential, as mm-hmm. we all know. I would say the most notable, it's up for debate, but really, if you're going to debate it, you're you're just really trying to be cool. It's really not debatable that, you know, the character uh, Raiden in Mortal Kombat was based <laughs> on one of the elements, clearly. Lo Pan, for sure. Lo Pan is Shang Tsung, you know, so... It did have these pop... And that's just, you know, the most obvious ones. Lightning, but went yeah. on to do all these pop culture references. And so it's it's become a real cult staple. But when it came out, it was an absolute flop, which is the story of all of John Carpenter's films. I would say more importantly, though, John Carpenter was not happy with the whole process, the way it all went down, the way that they just kind of completely dropped the ball with marketing it, everything. Mm-hmm. Like they were all just kind of left there 
to just fail. And he just said, I'm done. I'm done with studio films. And he vowed to just walk away and go back to his roots of independent features. And the film that he followed this up with, going back to his independent roots, is one of our favorites. And the only other one that we've ever covered was Prince of Darkness. Yeah. It's like, what a... A 180 there mm-hmm. to go from Big Trouble in Little China to Prince of Darkness. and Very different. And it was not a hit, but it was also very much a Carpenter film. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see how that led him in his own direction back to being more authentic to himself as a filmmaker. Yeah, it was really interesting again to bring back that commentary to listen to these two very successful individuals reflect back on a time when everything wasn't so certain because we take for granted that these people are successful but there were points in their life where they're they were not necessarily going to be successful it all hinged on these choices they were making yeah well and kurt russell really talked about that a lot he was in a place where he was not doing well as an Mm -hmm. actor at all and so the fact that John Carpenter even chose him was kind of like, what are you thinking? You should have <laughs> gone with a better actor. Uh, and they just stuck with it. You know, I, I think that that's really interesting that it says something about their relationship with each other, which I think really comes through when you see them together and talking is I think it was more important for them to just work together and make something that they were really passionate about mm-hmm. than the end result. And I think that because of that, as time has gone on, it holds up as being a little bit more authentic. It's a really yeah. solid film. I mean, Golden Child comes out the same year. Between the two, they're very different films. But I love them both for for their own kind of contributions to this strange subgenre that was really ahead of the curve. Because after this, a lot of films were like, oh mainly just because Golden Child succeeded. It's like, maybe we should try and mix these elements and stuff like that. But overall, two great films. But Big Trouble in Little China for me is just, it's just going to be that kind of happy place. I love the film. I always have. Mm -hmm. Every time I rewatch it, it never, unfortunately, with a lot of 80s films, they become a little bit more cringy as time goes on. But this one, it's just a fun really lighthearted simple watch and yeah nothing's too serious it's goofy you know mm-hmm. all the cringiness too it's like it was supposed to be cringy in the 80s so yeah. you get to just enjoy it yeah so it ages well so if you've not seen this for some reason highly recommend it i mean Heck it's yeah, really dude. really fun they even did a comic series i have a bunch of the comics mm-hmm. for big trouble in little china you know all these kind of ideas so it's done really well for itself and Carpenter and um, Russell went on to work together again, but not a whole lot. You know, I thought that they would really continue to work together a lot, but kind of did their own thing, but they remained really close. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Carpenter's clearly not making films anymore right now. He's all about that music life. Kurt Russell's still doing very well for himself, but I think that this is one of those yeah. kind of golden ages. The thing and Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. Mm-hmm. Like These are really great films that they did together. Kurt Russell, the most recent thing we've seen him in was that Santa Claus film he did. Which, it was so good. <laughs> I know. I thought it was going to be dumb and like a sad thing. It was a delight. We're coming on the holiday season. Give yourself a Christmas present. Yeah. 
Watch him. Actually, I, and I think beyond that, the other most recent thing we saw was that super indie film, uh, Bone Tomahawk. Yeah, it came out earlier. Yeah, he was really great in that too. Yeah, I mean, he's just great. Check it out. Actually, speaking of, um, we talk about our friends at Reconcinimation. Mm Mm-hmm. I was part of an uh, episode that they did that celebrated Kurt Russell, and we all went through all of our favorite movies and everything like that. So dig through their archives and find that one, because that is a blast, too. It's like Mm -hmm. a giant celebration of Kurt Russell's complete filmography, and we talk a little bit about that, too. But Big Trouble in Little China for me, Jack Burton, is maybe not quite Snake. I mean, because Snake is pretty precious to me, but... It's right there. It's no Captain Ron. It's no Captain Ron. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, there's just no, around, no way around that. love Captain Ron. I love when John Carpenter said that was his favorite role that yeah. Kurt Russell, a guy who has directed Kurt Russell in multiple iconic roles was like, but Captain Ron's really your best role. Oh my gosh. I want to watch it so bad right now. I've watched Captain Ron like 50 times. I'll watch it again immediately. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and do that right now. Okay, bye. Sorry, guys. We're done talking. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next time. Uh, Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this look back at uh, Big Trouble in Little China. If you like what you heard, like we said, rate, review, subscribe, spread the word. You can follow us on Instagram at LaserGraves. You can hear all of our back episodes at LaserGraves.com. You can join our Patreon at Patreon.com slash LaserGraves. Go follow all of our friends, Bad Taste Video Podcasts, Reconcinimation, all the dudes that we share in our stories. Doing this for you every week to entertain you. And uh, we don't know what we're bringing you next time, but, you know, we got to watch Captain Ron first. So give us a break. Leave us alone. We're going to watch it. (laughs) Bye. Bye.